Hi, I'm Michael Morris. Thank you for joining us as we journey through the Christian Fundamentals Discipleship course. Living for Christ is a choice that we have the privilege of making every day. The Bible is brimming with life-giving truths and rich promises from God. It tells us what He is like and sheds light on His plans and purposes for our lives. The better we understand, embrace and apply these truths, the richer our personal relationship with Him will be. It's hard to believe that tonight is our last night of discipleship course. It's, it's, it's hard to believe it's gone so quickly. It feels like it's, we've only just begun. And I said to Siobhan today, I said, I've just finished preparing. I haven't even ministered the course, the last, the last lesson, and I already missed the people in the course. <laughs> I said it's... <laughs> It does. We come together in a different setting and we spend time and we chat to each other. It's, it's good. I'm going to miss it. But anyway, here we are tonight. Let's open in prayer. Our God and Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time we can set aside and just be together. Thank you for your word and thank you that it is life and light to us. And Lord, we want to pray that tonight as we read your word, as we look at kingdom things, Lord, that your kingdom, just a realization of your kingdom will come alive in our hearts that we will be challenged, that we will be encouraged, and Lord, that tonight's lesson would be like a catalyst that causes a shift in our hearts and in our thinking, leading us deeper into who you are and into greater levels of fruitfulness for your glory. And so, Lord, we thank you, Holy Spirit, for your presence here tonight, and we pray that you would minister to us as we open our hearts to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we're closing off with a lesson on kingdom. Stephen asked me a pertinent question, a question I also asked myself when I compiled this whole course. He says, why do you end with kingdom focus? Surely we should begin with kingdom focus. And it's a good question. You know, I thought about that long and hard as well. Where do you put the kingdom message, right in the beginning or right at the end? But I think the more we understand discipleship, the greater our understanding of kingdom becomes. But on the other hand, the more we understand kingdom, the greater the importance of discipleship and the role discipleship plays becomes. So it's a, it's a two-sided coin, no matter which way you look at it, neither is wrong or right. The purpose of tonight's lesson is to provide an understanding of some basic principles relating to the kingdom of God and how these find expression in our daily lives. I'm very intrigued as to how much of the course that we've already covered comes into this last lesson. It's like I said to Stephen, it's like a, a, a lens where you have images coming into a lens sort of in, 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 a, in a triangular way. Light comes into a lens this way and then goes out that way as well. And so much of, the, of, of this whole course kind of finds, comes together in this lesson and we focus it on out again afterwards. So it's interesting to notice some points, some basic points I want to make right up front is that Jesus, when he walked the earth and lived here, he didn't preach a thing that we call today the gospel of salvation or the gospel of prosperity or the gospel of healing. He preached the gospel of the kingdom. And in the gospel of the kingdom, there is healing and blessing and prosperity and salvation and righteousness and many, many other wonderful themes. But all of them are packaged within this message of the kingdom. And it's important we understand it this way. Although Jesus did speak about salvation, his emphasis was on the kingdom. Salvation gives us entrance into the kingdom of God, but it's not an end in itself. <clears throat> so much of 
our, our message as the church, or as believers, points Jesus as a destination. Points to heaven as a destination. Points to salvation as a destination. But Jesus didn't really minister this way. He didn't refer to himself as a destination. He referred to himself as the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he understood that his role and mission from the Father was to be an usher for all of us to come to where he is in, in relationship with God the Father, to bring us into kingdom life. So salvation and getting people saved is not our goal, is not our purpose. Discipleship is. And if you say, well, when do you arrive at discipleship? You start understanding the idea that a disciple is somebody who never arrives, but is somebody who's always on a journey. When did you arrive at marriage? Well, you said your vows one day. That day you kind of made it official. But that doesn't mean that that's, okay, I've now done the marriage thing, and, and that's it, right? You know, once I, 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 was, <laughs> I was giving a sermon on, on love and expressing love and honor and value, and I called an old couple, Stephen and Elise, to the front. And I said, you know, just as a demonstration, you know, just, you've been married for so many years. Tell, show us, well, how do you express love and, and, and gratitude to your wife? And he said, no, I told her I loved her on the day I married her. How many more times must I say it? <laughs> says, I told you I love you. I said I loved you on the day I married you. If anything changes, I'll let you know. <laughs> that was Steve. That was Steve Mankies. And uh, anyway, anyway, sometimes we treat our relationship with God that way. That kind of we're saved now and we make salvation or this thing called the sinner's prayer, a destination. And we just got to get people there, and then everything will be okay. But you just don't see that kind of message preached in the gospel. You don't see Christianity ever as being this kind of destination thing, or even God being a destination in himself. We work towards relationship and intimacy the same way a couple does, the same way you do with any friend, and the more you get to know them, you know, the more intimate the relationship becomes. The incredible thing is that after living with my wife, and, you know, for 11 years now, she's taken on some of my mannerisms and I've taken on some of hers. And that happens when you draw very close to somebody. And that's a beautiful thing that God comes and does when we enter into relationship with Him. We begin to take on some of His mannerisms. And that's where the kingdom message and the, 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 the seed of the kingdom begins to, to grow. Second point I want to make just up front is that the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are the same thing. There are, some, there are terms uh, referring to the same thing. You'll notice in the Gospels of Mark, Luke, and John, they all refer to the kingdom of God, whereas Matthew refers to the kingdom of heaven. They're simply different terms referring to the same thing because they would... I won't say they were written for different people, but there's, there's a reason Matthew did it slightly differently and he referred to the kingdom of heaven. But they all refer to the same thing because you'll find some theology out there that says, no, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are two different things. That the kingdom of heaven is what is up there and the kingdom of God is, is rulership that we experience here. No, they're just terms that are synonymous. You can use either and they infer the same thing. So what is this thing called the kingdom of God? Well, we've already touched on this in lesson number seven, the believer's authority, that the kingdom is a domain over which a king exercises rulership or authority or influence. The kingdom of God is characterized by the presence and the expression of the king. 
Now I want to draw a little bit from our, our lesson on the church where we spoke about the ecclesia, the called out ones, and the conventus Romanorum, I think is, is, is what it was called, that wherever two or more Roman citizens were, that the, the empire of Rome was there. It was as though Caesar's rulership was there, his presence was there. And Jesus used this term to say, wherever two or more of you are gathered, my presence is there. And so the kingdom of God is, is characterized in very basic ways that where the presence of the king is and the expression of his heart are, that in those places and times, the kingdom or the domain of his influence are being expressed. God, God's kingdom rule and reign is felt and expressed within the hearts of his kingdom people. So it begins not with an external working, but with an internal working, setting it apart from every other kingdom. Alexander Fenter says, the kingdom is the rule of God, the church is the community that receives and expresses that rule of God. A few weeks ago in, in church, I ministered a series where we spoke about the kingdom in terms of what the people of Israel were expecting versus the reality of what Jesus came to present and just how different the two kingdoms worked and how different they were. Israelites and the people of Israel, the Jews, had an idea of a king that would come and bring them liberation from the Roman occupation and from the dominance and would, would, would settle up Jerusalem as the capital and as the head and establish Israel and defeat all its enemies and he would come like a king, an earthly king, and exert his dominance upon the world and upon the adversaries. Whereas Jesus came, he spoke about a very different kind of kingdom. Um, some have called it an upside-down kingdom. I like to call it an inside-out kingdom. Earthly kingdoms, and, and very often our way of thinking, even in terms of governance and authority and the things we pray for is, we must get people of, Christian people in positions of authority, you know, if we can just get God into parliament and get them all born again and doing God's things, then we can exert a Christian agenda onto this country and, 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 and in so doing, exert kingdom influence, which is still the same kind of way of thinking as the Israelites had. Whereas Jesus said, no, my kingdom doesn't work that way. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a good Christian in Parliament. I mean, I played you a video last week about something that happened in Parliament. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that's a bad thing in itself. But as soon as we start having a thinking that our God is going to exert himself upon people and we are going to dominate and take the ground and, and take it, you know, by oppressing others, we've lost the whole point. It's like the disciples that said to Jesus, you know, let, shall we call fire and brimstone down upon them? And Jesus said to them, really? You don't know who you're from. You don't, you don't understand this kingdom at all. That's just not how God works. Instead of working from the outside, God begins to work from the inside through personal relationship. And we're going to look at that a bit tonight, how that all works itself out. Hebrews 10, 16 says, This is the new covenant that I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws not upon their necks, not upon them, but into their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. I will cha change their behavior or their external conduct, if you like, not by exerting rules upon them that they have to live up to, not by giving them religion, but by giving them life and a different way of life on the inside. Part of what made the gospel of the kingdom such good news was that it was not a set of laws that Christ came to put on us. Rather, it was new life that he puts within us, changing our hearts and then our behaviors, our motives, our desires less selfish, 
we think less of ourselves and we start wondering, how can I honor God? Isn't that the question or the heart of a disciple? I'm here to follow you. How, what, what is it you desire of me? How do I live for you? It's those kind of questions, which is the antithesis of this world. This world is in it for itself. And we get caught up in it. Come on. We live for ourselves. We live for what benefits us. And unless there's some kind of moral code or something in us that changes us to say, hang on a second. We don't change. And so, like I said, God doesn't, he's, the kingdom of God doesn't work externally, but he begins working within us. And this is what it means to be born from above or born again. One of the first references to the kingdom of God is, is found in an, in an encounter that Jesus has with a man called Nicodemus, a Pharisee. There was a man, John 3, 1 to 6, of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Let's just pause there for a moment. What did he mean you cannot see the kingdom of God? I've often wondered about that. Does it, and I think it has a lot to do with the same thing that, that Jesus says to the disciples after he, he gives the parable of the, of the sower. And they say to him, what does this mean? And he says, you know, to those who, who are outside, all things come in parables, so that seeing they will not see and hearing they will not hear. They won't understand. Because they haven't got spiritual eyes to see. They haven't got the discernment to see it. But this word see, if I, when I went to go look up the etymology of it, it means to know. Now, when I know you, it means I don't know of you, but I know you, right? They will not be able to know the kingdom of God. I'll be able to see. I can see the miracles you do, Jesus. I can see that there's something different about you, Nicodemus says. But Jesus says, look, you can see these things. You can see the outward works. But unless you're born again, you're never going to actually see where this stuff comes from. You're never going to truly understand. It means to perceive. And perception is a loaded thing because I can see something and have my own perception through which I see and, and perceive and understand that based on my perspective. My perspective determines my perception. Now, from my perspective, I'm, he says, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you're going to have the wrong perspective. And so you're not going to be able to perceive the kingdom of God properly. You need a new perspective. You need to be born again. It also means to consider, to think about, to, to, to be able to get your mind around, and it means to understand, to apprehend. So Jesus says to him, these things that you see, Nicodemus, you rightly say, you know, that, that I can see you're a teacher, these signs and wonders. It's interesting that Jesus' response to that isn't, yes, these are wonderful signs, or yes, this is what God is like. He says, he sees that in this man's heart, in his way of looking at it, that there's something missing. And he says, Nicodemus, from your point of view, you're never going to understand this. All you're going to see are signs. He says, but if you're born again, everything changes. Nicodemus said to him, but how can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born? Legitimate question, wouldn't you say? But Jesus answered, Assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now what verse 6 tells us is significant because it means that the kingdom of God 
cannot be attained or experienced by our good works or by our efforts. It's something that we receive from the Spirit of God that has an eternal impact on our spirits, on who we are. The kingdom of God is first and foremost a spiritual kingdom that brings change and life into a dead natural realm. It decaying, con uh, 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 corrupted, perverted natural realm. It brings life. It's a spiritual kingdom first and foremost. And so it begins to work in a very different way, not from the outside in and always in a powerful way, but when Jesus starts talking about the kingdom of God, he compares it to interesting things, to leaven or a little seed. So we look, read from Luke 13, verses 18 through to 21. Jesus said, what is the kingdom of God like? How can I illustrate it? It's like a tiny mustard seed which a man planted in a garden. It grows and becomes a tree, and the birds make their nests in its branches. So his whole idea is that something very small and seemingly insignificant has tremendous power to grow and to change things and to make an impact. Likewise, he also said, what else is the kingdom of God like? It's like the yeast a woman used in making bread. Even though she put only a little yeast in three measures of flour. Those three measures of flour means a lot of flour. So just a little bit comparative to how much flour, it permeated every part of the dough. And this is the way that the kingdom of God works. When we're born again, the nature of Christ is placed within our hearts like a seed or like leaven. Romans says to each one is given the, me the, the measure of faith. As we yield to that nature, it produces in us the likeness and nature of the kingdom of God, permeating and influencing every facet of our lives. So it begins to change everything. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so you have this picture again. Jesus says to Nicodemus, Unless you are reborn, recreated, a new creation, born from above, you cannot understand the kingdom of God. And when we do enter into the kingdom of God, Paul tells us here in Corinthians that old things, that old life has passed away, Behold, all things have become new. The word behold signifies that change is clearly evident. The word behold for me in Scripture is quite, is, quite a, is quite a big one because I think so often in our spirituality, we, 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 we constrain a lot of biblical truth to a spiritual realm. Uh, what do I mean by that? To, into into an intangible sort of thing. Oh, you know, I, I, I may change the way I think about something a little bit, but it doesn't change my behavior. Or, you know, for example, God says, Isaiah 43, 18 and 9 says, Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Can you not see it? To behold means to perceive. There's a perceivable change. There's a difference. And I, I'm, I know I've told you the story even within this course before that there was a point where somebody said to me one day, Michael, what happened to you? Because you're not the same person that I remember from all those years back. She perceived a change. I didn't perceive it because it had been a slow and a gradual change in my life. But there was change. And that's, that's what the kingdom of God should, should bring about. I really like... Um, Jay John's analogy on this. He says, some people say, you know, you have to have a day and a time when you gave your heart to Jesus because, you know, otherwise you, you don't really know. He says, well, look, I don't have a day. 
I know the day I was born, but I don't really know the time I was born. I don't know, really understand the conditions that I was born. But I know that I was born because there's evidence to suggest it. And likewise, I don't know the day or the time or the moment or the conditions under which I gave my heart to Jesus. But I know that I did because there's evidence to suggest it. Really good analogy. And this is the point that I want to make. When the kingdom of God begins to take, touch our hearts, things begin to change. We begin to see things differently. We begin to consider things differently. We gain a heavenly perspective on things. Not everything, little by little, line upon line, precept upon precept. The more we learn, the more we grow, the more we ought to transfer, transform. As we live that change out, the kingdom of God gains its expression. So, again, this analogy is key. I, I keep, I'm going to keep referring to this throughout the lesson. Our way of thinking of a kingdom or dominion so often is external, hoping to change the internal. If I do something, maybe it'll change the situation. Jesus did something, and he changed the inside. And instead of trying to manifest change on the inside from the outside, he manifests change on the outside from the inside. You can manifest change on the outside without changing your heart, but you can only do it for so long. It's called faking it. It's called putting on a facade, and you're lying. You're lying to yourself. You're lying to the people you're pretending around. You're lying to God. You're living a deceptive lie, and it catches up with you. It does. Suicide rates are higher than they've ever been, even though I can put on Facebook a persona about my dream life. I can make everybody think I have the most wonderful life and then go and commit suicide. Why is that? Because I'm living a lie. Make sense? Double standard, double life. So Jesus says, I start from the inside. As we live that change out, it gains expression, brings greater influence through our lives into the lives of others. This way, like leaven, it begins to grow and permeate society. They did some studies a little while. I don't know. I wouldn't say they did some studies. But mathematically, I know that this statistic is still true. We often think of the likes of Reinhard Bonker and uh, Daniel Kalender who do these massive evangelistic crusades out into Africa where they can get a million, one and a half million people at one crusade and in a year get millions of souls won to Christ. And we think, sure, man, that's... That's so many people. What an incredible ministry. But in truth, it's a drop in the ocean when you consider how many billion people live on the earth today. Mathematically, if each one of us discipled one person every year, and the next year, if you discipled one person, both of you disciple one more, and the next year, each of you who discipled one person disciples one more, at that rate of just one person a year, one to the Lord and discipled. You'd start off very slow, but you'd win the entire earth's population to Jesus within one generation. It's less than 40 years. It's 39 point something or 38 point something years. Interesting. Because of the exponential way in which it grows. That's what the kingdom of God is like. Think about this. Jesus trained up 12 disciples. That's it. And he said, now go and make disciples. And it's, they've turned the world upside down. They've turned the world upside down. The message is still rolling. It's still growing. The scriptures that they wrote, there's no document on earth or in history which has been printed more, copied more. There's no, there's no, there's no document of antiquity that is anywhere close to the, 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 the um, accuracy that, that scripture has. Those men turned the world upside down. 
the potential that you and I have just within us to be changed and to make a difference in this world for Christ is way beyond what I think we understand and we can measure. So often I think we sell ourselves short. We sell ourselves short by saying, you know, ah, oh, what difference is one person? What difference can I make just when I only want one soul to the Lord, you know, and it's so long. And, you know, do you think that the person who won Billy Graham to the Lord made much of a contribution to the Christian, to, 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 the, to the body of Christ? Do you think the person who won Miles Monroe to the Lord, won Andreas Kiriakou to the Lord, somebody who's been influential on a small or big, do you think that they made a big contribution to the kingdom of God? So who knows the influence you will have down the line? Carrying on with the same theme of the kingdom, we're going to look at point number four. In the world, but not of this world. As born-again believers, we need to remember that although we are still present in this world, our heritage and the source of life is no longer from this world. And that should excite us. Why? Because that gives us a source to draw from and a place to look to and, 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 and a place to orientate our expectation. Ephesians 2 verse 6 in the New Living Translation says, For He raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. That's exciting. Philippians 3.20, But we are citizens of heaven. Citizen, that means I belong there. It means that is my home country. I have the passport. What is your passport? I should say, who is your passport? Do you know? No. 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 <laughs> the seal. Well, who is the seal of your salvation? Holy Spirit. You got the Holy Spirit. He's your passport to say, I'm, you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. This means that we are, ident are to identify more with our heavenly position in Christ than our physical position on earth. Wow. Doesn't that change the orientation of our perspective and our perception of ourselves first and foremost? I mean, this brings us right back into righteousness. This brings us right back into worship, living to be who God created us to be. It means that we don't look to the world for answers, for meaning, for significance, or for direction. It means that we, we, we establish and discover these things from another realm completely. John 17, 14 to 16, Jesus said, to, he's praying to the Father, he says, I've given them your word, your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world. They, why did the world hate them for that? Let's see if, if there's any guesses here. Why do you think the world hated them for that? For the fact that they're not of this world? They seemed different, yeah? I call them a peculiar people. What else? Very good. They were upsetting the established authority, yeah? They were challenging people. But if you look at the life of Jesus, and then you look at the life of the disciples, you discover that this world had no hold on them. This world's system couldn't tie them down. 
This world system couldn't restrict them and it couldn't stop them. It didn't have a candle. It didn't have control on them. It's like manipulation. When you start breaking out of, manip out of a manipulative relationship, the person who is manipulating you realizes they have no control over you anymore and they get really upset about that until they resign themselves to the fact that that is just now how things are going to be and then they have no other option because they can't control you anymore. Their last vestige of influence in your life is broken. And so the people of the world hated them because they had no answers for what they were doing. They were casting out demons. They were healing the sick. They destroyed their religious theology. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, Jesus says, but that, they should, that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. On the one hand, we... we we, forget, we, we, we either focus on the fact that Jesus came, sent from God, and he healed the sick, and he delivered the captives, and he died on the cross, and he forgave sin, and he did all of these wonderful things. And on the other hand, we focus on the fact that Jesus was persecuted, and he was, he was killed and, 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 and martyred by his own. And we must, you know, be willing to do the same for Jesus. And a lot of people very willingly say, yes, and we must suffer for Jesus. But at the same time, the reason we must suffer for Jesus is simply because we're healing the sick. We're casting out demons. There's an expression of kingdom life that causes the world to push back. You've got to understand what Jesus, it'll, it'll become very clear to you as we go through the rest of this lesson, that what Jesus came to do was to shine light into the darkness, to force the darkness to retreat. He came to bring in another kingdom. And no king gives up his authority or his throne without a fight. Amen? And that's what Jesus came to do. He came to usher in a new kingdom. The reason that Christ was able to overcome the world and walk in victory was because he was not of this world, but of another world. He was not subject to the sin and to the limitations of this world. And folks, I want to say to you tonight, so too, those who are Christ's are no longer of this fallen world and its ways of doing things. We are of another world, able to live overcoming lives of victory over the things that this world has to offer. In other words, the devil and this world and the sin and the, the pursuits and the limitations, just like with Jesus and just like the disciples, don't have a hold on us. Do you remember when we did righteousness and we stood here, or sanctification, we spoke about letting go? So often the things we need to let go of is not just the sin in our lives. That's what we always think sanctification is. It's just letting go of the sin. But there's many things that we hold on to that limit the life of God within us. Wrong self-impressions, wrong, self wrong ways of thinking about ourselves, seeing ourselves. And Jesus came and said, I don't want you to be subject to those things. I want you to focus on a different place. Your citizenship is not of those things and of this world. And you're never going to live an overcoming life in this world as long as you remain subject to those things. I mean, what does this mean to how we see ourselves and we live out our everyday lives? It should have huge implications and ramifications. We walk into places confident of God's goodness and blessing, expecting favor and victory. Not with arrogance, not as if we're better than any or everybody else, but just with the realization that we're not subject to this world. Sure, we live in a sinful world, 
We live in a broken world. We will get sick from time to time. We will get tempted. We will have challenges. We will have to deal with things of darkness. But here's the way Jesus put it, and I absolutely love it. He said, in this world you will have tribulations. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. In other words, the darkness is going to confront you, and the challenges of this kingdom and this world are going to confront you. But be of good cheer. Why? Not because they're confronting you, but because I've overcome them, and I have made you an overcomer of them. You are the overcomer I have sent into that situation to bring light, to bring the kingdom. Isn't that incredible? That should make us see ourselves and our, our workplaces and our friendships and the things we encounter every day from a completely different point of view. You see, a spiritual principle I've written down there, the less power and influence the world has over us, the more power and influence we will have over it. It's the truth. So the Bible gives us clear instructions as to where we should focus our affections and our attention. Let's read them. Colossians 3, verse 2. This is from the Passion Translation. It says, Christ's resurrection is our resurrection too. This is why we are to, to yearn for all that is above. For that's where Christ sits, enthroned at the place of all power, honor, and authority. Yes, feast on all the treasures of the heavenly realm and fill your thoughts with heavenly realities, not with the distractions of this realm. And we all know there are so many distractions in this realm, so many things vying for our attention. 1 John 2, 15 to 17 in the message says, Don't love the world's ways. Don't love the world's goods. Love of the world squeezes out love for the Father. But I want to say to you that the opposite is also true. Love for the Father squeezes out love for the world. And there's, a, there's another principle, written, you know, and, uh, and lying underneath all of this, is that you tend to develop a hunger for that on which you continually feed. If you continually feed on the Word of God, in the beginning you might not be all that hungry for it. Maybe you'll start doing it because you think it's the right thing to do or God expects it of you. But you'll discover when that word starts becoming alive in, the heart, in your heart, the more you read it, the more you want to read. The more you know of God, the more you want to know of God. But if you start chasing food, the more food you eat, the more food you want. One bowl of pudding, what do you want immediately after a bowl of pudding? Another bowl of pudding? Or is that just me? Is that just my weakness? Do you understand? What you continually feed on, you develop a hunger for. Love for the world squeezes out a love for God. It's true. That's why Jesus says in the parable of the sower, again, he says, those are, those are, there are those who, who planted amongst weeds. And the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things choke the world. But I want to say to you that if we feed ourselves on the word of God, that word of God will create us, in us a desire for heavenly things, which will choke the world out of us. It has to die. That's the sanctification journey. He goes on to say, practically everything that goes on in this world, wanting our own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important, has nothing to do with the Father. It just isolates you from Him. And that's the devil's agenda, isn't it? To keep you so busy, even busy doing things for God, that you end up isolating yourself from Him. The world and all its wanting, wanting, wanting is on the way out. But whoever does what God wants is set for eternity. 
One of my favorite quotes comes from Tony Fitzgerald, and I've written it down there. He says that we do not say the kingdom of God has come once we've managed to close down every bar and brothel. We can say that the kingdom of God has come when men's hearts no longer desire such things. I love that quote. Because it's not about enforcing things from the outside. It's about hearts that shift toward God and are so changed that their very desires, their very motives shift and change towards God and towards the things of God. From people like that, life begins to flow. Again, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, it says, Paul, Paul says, I beg you, I beseech you, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind, that you may prove, and then you have the behold part of it, that you may prove, prove for yourself, what? What is the good and acceptable and the perfect will of God? You see, folks, our lives will only be transformed to the measure that our thinking is transformed. Did you get that? Our lives will only be transformed to the measure that our thinking is transformed. That's why God says, set your mind on things above. If your thinking isn't transformed, your life is not going to be transformed. Set your mind. Set your mind on things above. Point number five, we're going to look at ambassadors for Christ. What does it mean to be an ambassador? As we begin to lay hold of the reality of our heavenly citizenry, we must also allow the mission of heaven to lay hold of us. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 20 says, And God has given us this task of reconciling people to Him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making this, his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. And so now we're going to start moving into the place where this heavenly reality that, that's beginning to go on within our hearts here, this experience of being born again and having the life of God live within us, how it gains its life and its strength for personal uh, transformation in the way we think and who we are from our relationship and intimacy with God and with His Word and with His Spirit, how that now begins to, we, we become so changed that now we become ambassadors for Christ, not because we now have this mission and this task that we have to do. We become ambassadors for Jesus because we are literally being transformed into His likeness. And as that happens, we naturally begin to become reconcilers. It's the outworking of the kingdom. It's not a contrived thing. It's like when you look at a fruit tree. You don't look, listen to it striving to produce fruit. It's the natural outworking of what's going on within it, of what it is, of the essence of what it is. And that's what a believer is. The term ambassador brings with it strong connotations. An ambassador, doesn't, an ambassador doesn't represent himself, but the country that sent him. He is therefore not at liberty to share his own opinions, for they carry no authority or significance. <laughs> Our worldly opinions carry no authority or significance. That's why, that's why the guys who went and said, we cast out this devil in the name of Paul and Jesus, and the devil and the, the, the demon said to him, Paul we know, and Jesus we know. Who are you? What authority do you have? Where, where do you get the audacity to come and... 
Yeah, they go to hiding that day. They learned something. We all learn something through that as well. He is therefore not at liberty to share his own opinions, for they carry no authority or significance. He is sent by his country to represent his country's culture, values, and interests. As Christ's ambassadors, we've been given the privilege of representing him and devoting our lives towards his heavenly interests and agenda. What is God's interests? What is God's agenda? What is God's kingdom agenda? Come on. Yeah. Reconciliation, what else? It's not a trick question. No? That none shall perish. Good, what else? How about love? How about peace? How about healing? What else? What else? Restoration. Deliverance. You see, this, this thing, as you start working it out, you go as an ambassador, you represent the values of your kingdom. Our nation is going to bring restoration. This is our value. We want restoration. This is our kingdom mandate. This is our country's thing as we come to represent the country. How are we going to do that? Well, in this area, this needs to happen. And in that area, that needs to happen. And here we need deliverance. And there we need healing. And there we need hope. And there we need joy. Do you understand? It's working out is not simplistic. It's very broad. But there is a clear interest and a clear agenda. The way we do this is by adopting the values and culture of the kingdom of God and living them out in our daily life. And this, folks, is the essence of discipleship, isn't it? We're going to be looking at kingdom culture and value system. Now, these are things important to understand. When we talk about uh, culture and value systems and all of these things, these are very worldly terms, so to speak, to help us understand human behavior. You know, anthropologists use these kinds of terms. But let's understand kingdom culture and a kingdom value system so that we, we can begin taking this kingdom message, which is sometimes kind of abstract and out there, and begin making it very practical for ourselves. What are values? Values have to do with one, what one regards as important or valuable in life. It has to do with the worth you place on an ideal or a moral or an ideology. A value system, therefore, is a set of moral governing standards or guidelines that govern your life. It determines how you spend your time. It determines what you consider to be important and helps you prioritize your life. Behavior will always be a reflection of deeply held values. Culture is where a set of guiding beliefs and values are shared amongst a group of people. Then we have the same values, we have the same things that we consider to be important, and we, th 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 it forms a culture or a way of doing things. Kingdom culture, therefore, is made up of the value systems of heaven communally shared and expressed by all its citizens. So you'll notice that even every church has its own culture, their own way of doing worship and praise, and their own way of outreach, and their own way of doing church life. It's their culture, and it's, it's centered around the things that they value. I, want, I love this analogy. In the same way that a Greek or Japanese family residing in a foreign country would live out their cultural values and customs in the midst of a completely different culture, so too believers are to live out their kingdom culture in a world that promotes a completely different set of values and practices. Easter time, the Greeks in South Africa all make red eggs. 
and they make, what are those, Stephen, what are those triangular spinach and cheese cookies that I don't like? Flaunas. What is that for? Also Easter. They make flaunas, because that's just the thing you make at Easter. We have hot cross buns. Oh, pickled fish. Yeah, you see, different culture. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's amazing that no matter, no matter where you go in the world, if you're around Greeks, around Easter, you're going to be having flaunas and, and red eggs. Because it's a cultural thing. And there's values behind it, behind it and all the rest. I'm not going to go into explaining those things. I just, know, I just have a, a little, little glimpse into that culture which is very different from mine in some ways. Now, although many today profess to be Christians, they still live their lives according to the values and customs of this world, and therefore they, their lives yield the same results. And this ought not to be so, as it undermines what it means to be a Christian. This, I lo- this is a great quote by Miles Monroe. He says, God's plan for man was to extend his heavenly kingdom or government to the earth through the principle of colonization. It's a dirty word in our country right now. We're trying to decolonize or uncolonize everything. But this is God's way of doing things in terms of man's assignment was to, be, to establish the influence and culture of heaven on the earth by representing the nature, values, and morality of God in the earth. In this way, God's heavenly rule would manifest itself on earth through his extended image in mankind. You see? Transformation from the inside out. So what is a Christian? I think this is a great question. The first time that Christ's disciples or followers were called Christians was in the church of Antioch. The term was adopted to identify those who believed and followed Jesus' teachings, adopting his value system and living it out. Uh, it's, It's interesting that before they were called Christians, they were called those of the way. And they all knew that the way was the way. That's funny. They, they're, they're of that way. They're of that way. We use that word to really describe anybody who's different to us. They're, they're of that way. They're that way inclined. It's worth noting that Christians did not give themselves this name. They were identified as such because of the way they lived. Isn't that interesting? Other people looked at them and they said that this is, these are little Christs. Regardless of the culture we may find ourselves in, here's the question. As others look on, would they consider us to be worthy of the title of Christian or one who is of Christ? Or is that just a term that we now use to identify ourselves in some kind of socialistic structure? How do you identify yourself? Well, I'm a Christian. Why are you a Christian? Well, my mommy was a Christian and my daddy was a Christian and our roots are Christian and it kind of just goes back. But I live like the world. Do you look like Christ? If others looked at you and walked past you and observed your behavior and the way you lived life, would they think, man, that person is just like Jesus? Because that's how Christians got their name. It wasn't a club that they identified with. It was a name that was given to them because of how they lived their lives. Throughout the New Testament, we're encouraged to adopt the values of heaven and live them out in our everyday lives. Let's read a few scriptures. James 3, 15 to 17. For jealousy and selfishness are not of God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly. So their origin, in other words, is not heavenly. Their origin is earthly. They're unspiritual 
and demonic. For wherever jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It's also peace-loving, gentle at all times and willing to yield to others. It's full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. So we see in the scripture how he contrasts the two worlds and says that they are, they are different. They are in opposition with each other in some ways. I don't know if I've done this whole culture thing with you before, but I'll do it very briefly. I'm not going to, I should have, I only just thought about it now. I could have done a presentation for you, but I'll, I'll draw pictures in the sky and you'll understand what I mean. If you had to define the culture that we live in, so just South African culture very generally, you can put all kinds of uh, attributes and adjectives concerning culture, but you kind of draw a ring around it and go, this is what our culture is like. The kingdom of God or Christianity is not meant to be a co-culture which has the same attributes or similar attributes. They're recognizably the same. They just have a different name. The kingdom of God is supposed to be not a co-culture, a culture that exists alongside harmoniously with other culture. The kingdom culture is a culture that is in opposition with the culture that is around. Now, when I say opposition, you immediately think in war. You're thinking, oh, so we should be opposing everything going on in this world, and there are things we do need to oppose, yes. But it works, again, not from the outside in. It works from the inside out. It says, I recognize and I can see that culture, but I recognize that I am not from that culture. And my culture opposes that culture. It is in opposition to it. It cannot exist alongside it harmoniously. What fellowship has light with darkness, the kingdom of the Bible says. You shall not be unequally yoked. So how does this work itself out then? Does that mean we need to go and confront everything and be bashing people with the Bible and, and, and war and all of these things? No, it doesn't mean that at all. How does that conflict work itself out? We're going to find out in a minute. Stay tuned. Let's read another scripture first of all concerning adopting the kingdom and the values of heaven. Colossians 3, 12 to 17. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on. Say, put on. It doesn't say assimilate. It doesn't say this is naturally going to osmosize into your life. There is clear... I don't know if osmosize is a work. I know what... It's not going to diffuse into you. Uh, there's not a... I beg your pardon? You're not going to get through osmosis, yes. In other words, there's a deliberate effort that is required. That's the point I want to make, okay? Put on, there's a deliberate... Listen, wouldn't it be great if we just woke up in the mornings, thought about the clothes we wanted to wear, and they'd be on? Yeah, you, you nod your head, your woman would never get dressed. <laughs> You'd still be changing on the way to work. You have to deliberately put your clothes on, right? It's an act you have to do. But look how often this comes up. Holy Beloved, put on tender mercies. In other words, this value system of the kingdom of heaven doesn't automatically happen. I need to conform to it, and it's a deliberate decision. I've got to put on tender mercies. Does it say anything about whether I feel like it or not? No. Put them on. Put on humility, meekness, long-suffering, 
bearing with one another and forgiving one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must do. But above all these things, we see it again. Put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God, there's another word, let. So I need to, there are certain things I need to do deliberately, and there's other things I need to yield to. I need to allow, I need to let the peace of God rule in my heart. Why? Because although it wants to, I often choose not to let it by focusing on things that cause anxiety. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you are also called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, with all wisdom. What does that mean? That means I need to, how do I let the word of God dwell in me richly? By deliberately putting my mind on it. By deliberately stopping other things from coming in so that I can allow that its space and its room that is needed. Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Let me ask you a question. When last did you correct or encourage your brother with a hymn? When last did you phone somebody and just sing to them? Okay, Michael, this is getting seriously weird. I am joking here, guys. But you understand, the myth. when we come together, we encourage one another with psalms, with hymns. We do that every Sunday, by the way, with spiritual songs. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. <laughs> I'm wondering how many of you are going to phone me tomorrow and say, Michael, I said something on my heart I wanted to share with you. <laughs> Amazing grace. Airtime finished. <laughs> and whoever you, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, just giving thanks to God. You see the beautiful, uh, it's talking just simply about heart orientation. It's saying, listen, don't, don't do that. Don't allow that. Don't give room for that. Focus on the things of God. Allow this to do. Allow it to come up out of you in, in hymns and songs of thankfulness and do it together and be together and share these things. And you understand, whatever you do in word or deed, just do it as unto the Lord, from a different value system, from a, with a different heart, not begrudgingly or of necessity, but because there's something in you that's changed. Again, Philippians 2, verse 1 to 4. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort in love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but for the interests of others. It's putting, to, putting into the people a value system. Don't just value what you can get, but put value on other people's interests. Put value on other people's endeavors and on their lives. Christ's Sermon on the Mount is recorded in Matthew 5 through to 7 has often been referred to as the kingdom manifesto. A manifesto can be defined as a public declaration of intentions, opinions, objectives, or motives as issued by a government or a sovereign organization. And in this portion of Scripture, Jesus clearly lays out what the values of the kingdom of God are. He says things like, you know, don't judge each other. Don't, don't try and judge other people, but take care of your own heart. Before you take a, log out, before you take a speck out of someone else's eye, take out the log in your own eye. He says things like, you have heard it said, but I say to you. He starts laying out values and principles of the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek. 
for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are, the, are, the, are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And he carries on. As one takes time to read this kingdom manifesto, and folks, I encourage you to do it. Don't do it all in one go if you can't. Just Matthew 5 to 7. Spend time in it. Read it. God, what is your kingdom really all about? Help me to understand the values of your kingdom. And ethos... Oh, sorry. I'm, I'm jumping a point here. That's important. Okay. As one takes time to read the kingdom manifesto, the ethos of heaven or the kingdom of God becomes clearly evident. What is an ethos? An ethos is the fundamental character or spirit of a culture. So it's got not so much to do with the flaunas or the red eggs, but why we have flaunas and red eggs. What's behind it? What does it symbolize? What's the meaning? What's the purpose and the point? It's the underlying sentiment that forms and informs the beliefs, customs, and practices of a group or society. As believers, we are to be the exemplification of the ethos of heaven. And what is this ethos? Love. God so loved the world that He gave Jesus. Jesus so loved the Father that He laid down His life. We so love Jesus that we become His disciples. Everything is motivated by love. Every miracle, every work. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-8 tells us about love. Love suffers long and is kind. This is what God is like. It doesn't envy. It doesn't parade itself. It's not puffed up. It doesn't behave rudely, and it does not seek its own. It is not provoked, and it thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And because of this, love never fails. And it kind of blows my mind. This is where we see the upside-downness of God's kingdom. Our thinking so often is that if we're going to change things, we're going to have to exert force to make them happen. But in James, we just read about how the wisdom that comes from above is willing to yield. That love endures wrongdoing. It endures all things. It endures so much and yet prevails. It's an incredible different way of doing things. And this is God's kingdom. And when it comes to God's kingdom, Jesus gave us some instructions. There's a key phrase that Jesus used when he taught his disciples how to pray, and that is this. Matthew 6, 9 to 10, he said, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come and let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this prayer just flies in the face of this idea that I must get saved so that I can get to heaven. Because I'm actually working against Jesus. Because what he wants to do is get me saved so that he can bring heaven to earth in and through me. If I am born again, I have the essence of heaven living within me. The Spirit of God, the peace of God, the joy of the Lord, the power of God. It's, it's all in me. It's there. And according to this prayer, it would be accurate to say that the kingdom of God has manifested itself when the will of the Father is done here on earth as it is always done in heaven. Would you agree with me? Alexander Fenter says, The kingdom of God in Scripture is not an idea. It's an event, an intervention of God in human history. The outpouring of spiritual power with all the phenomena of the Spirit is understood as a manifestation of God's presence among us. Now that manifestation can be where the Holy Spirit so moves upon me and changes my heart and life that I change and thus my behavior changes. 
That's a manifestation of the kingdom. Revelation knowledge is the manifestation of the kingdom, leading to repentance. But in other ways, that manifestation finds outworking in physical things, healings, deliverance, raising of the dead, all kinds of marvelous ways, speaking to the weather and seeing it change. I've done that once. Do you know that? I've done that once. <laughs> Weird. It hasn't worked again since. But I tried. <laughs> I did it once. We had a men's breakfast up on Signal Hill many years ago. Uncle Nick, you were there. And we got up there. It was the most beautiful morning. And then the wind started to, to go. And the wind picked up and picked up and picked up. And I just, I thought, oh, this is going to just ruin everything. I mean, the squattles, you couldn't light them. So I kind of went away from people. You don't do this kind of thing in front of people when you're starting out. <laughs> and I faced into the wind and I said, quiet, be still. And immediately everything just, the wind just died. And I was like, yo! And then an almighty gust came. And blew and blew and blew. And I, the strangest thing happened, because normally with my humor I'd go, yeah, okay. Okay, you got me there. Something strange happened in my heart that day. I was angry. I said, don't you defy me. I said, be still. And that was it. Now, like I say to you, that day, special faith, special words, special situation, I felt led to do that and it worked. Have I done it since? Well, I've tried. <laughs> you understand? Why do I say, why do I share that story of all stories? Anyway, Point is, manifestations of kingdom authority, of kingdom life. Jesus manifested in many different ways. Yes, Siobhan? He also described every Sunday as Yes, Alexander does. Where the people of God come together and they sing about the king and his presence is there with them. Isn't that beautiful? And, we, and where we go out and our kingdom people, that whole, that, whole, that whole scripture of where you come together and where you worship me, I'm there in you. And wherever you go, I will never leave you, forsake you. I'm with you wherever you go. Everywhere we go has the potential to be a kingdom happening. A kingdom happening. An expression of the kingdom. We know that there is no wickedness, sickness, or pain in heaven. That means that wherever these things exist on earth, we know that they are not the will of the Father. Would you agree with me? So Jesus has given us everything we need in order to cast out the kingdom of darkness by manifesting His kingdom wherever we go. Remember I spoke to you about those different cultures just now and how they're in opposition to each other? We're going to start getting into answering how that works itself out. Matthew 16, 18 to 19 says, And I say to you, Peter, let's just give you the context of this. Jesus sitting and he asks his disciples, Who do people say that I am? Oh, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah the prophet. And then he asks a pointed question. Who do you say I am? And Peter says, You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And Jesus looks at him and says, Peter... Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And he goes on to say, I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. What rock? The revelation that he is the Christ, the promised Messiah. I will build my church. And then he says this, and the gates of hell, or Hades, shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of heaven, that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Not only does Jesus promise that the gates... Now, what do the gates represent? They represent the power of established influence or the established power or influence. 
that the established power of hell on this earth, the influence of the evil one, will not prevail against you and me. Why? Because they won't prevail against the name of Jesus. But he also says that he's given us the keys of the kingdom. Keys in Scripture represent authority. The way we use this authority is by binding or taking authority over the influence of the kingdom of darkness and authorizing or loosing the power of the kingdom of God. An accurate understanding of the Scripture, I need to put in these notes, is that we are authorized to loose or bring to bear that which has already been loosed in heaven and bind that which has already been bound. What does that mean? Jesus overcame certain things and bound their power. We can bind that power by His authority and in His name because His representatives. He has loosed healing, restoration, deliverance, life, and we can do the same. So how do these two cultures that are in opposition, and I said at war, and, and, and oppose one another, <clears throat> how, do they, how do we do that? By going and beating on people. No, because people is not our enemy. Our war is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. What are those? Gates of Hades. Principalities and powers, mindsets, thoughts, ethos that is not of heaven, value system that is not of heaven. All of these things we've been discussing, they are well established in the earth, but we come from a completely different one. And the established system of this earth has no power or authority over the church except that which the church allows it to have. Jesus has set us free from these things that just like him, we don't need to live lives that are subject to them. But he's given us authority to break these things down and to tear them with the heart of love and compassion for the individual to set them free from that which keeps them from God and keeps them from fullness of life. To pray for the sick and see them healed. To minister to the bondos in bondage, to those who are addicted, and bring them into fellowship and, and, and union with Jesus and with God. That his life and love can flow through them and do the same thing in their lives in a unique way for them that he's done in your life. A practical example of how we do this, for example, would be to bind the power of sickness and release heavenly healing in the name, authority, and power of Jesus. We do this very often. We see it done, right? Why do we do that? What is it symbolic of? It's of this very principle. Binding and loosing. Jesus says that you cannot plunder the house of the strong man until the strong man is bound, right? But when you bind the strong man, you can plunder his house. And that's what Jesus did. He bound the strong man, cast him out, and we plunder. We plunder the gates of hell. That's, 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 the, that's the war of the kingdom. If you want to attach any kind of warfare to this, that's the only way it manifests. It manifests through love, meeting oppression, through compassion, meeting What's the word I'm looking for? Domination, oppression, where the, where the, the ways and, and, and that which perverts has established in someone's life. Kingdom of God comes and just reels it and breaks it apart. And with this, we come to the Great Commission. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he entrusted his disciples with, excuse me for the mistake there, with a very important task. This instruction to call God, uh, to all God's people has become known as the Great Commission and has two specific scriptural references. Number one, in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, 
Now, it's very important that we hear the words he said because they hold such ramifications. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. How much authority? All of it. All of it. All authority has been given to me. Go, therefore. Now, if you are authorized by the one who carries all authority, what do you carry? You carry all delegated authority. You go and represent him, his authority. You don't go in your own authority. You go in your own authority, they say, who are you? But if you say, I come in the name of, say, ah, I know him. I'm the sent one. Go, therefore, he says, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So go, and I'm coming with you. You go and stand in the authority, I'll make it happen. But you go. Again, we see it in Mark 16, 15 to 18. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, and he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow who? Those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So we have these wonderful manifestations that Jesus talks about when his kingdom comes to bear. Kingdom happenings, as we said earlier on. Manifestations of the kingdom of God, where his authority is brought to bear by those who believe. Believe what? That he is the son of God. That he is who he says he is. And that we can take his word when he sends us. It's that, it's, that whole, it's that whole Joel Osteen thing. When he puts his hand on his Bible and he says, this is my Bible. I am who it says I am. I have what, it's, what it says I have. And I can do what it says I can do. Because this is the word of God. This is Jesus. In a sense. You understand. And if I believe this. And I step out in authority. Those things that. Jesus promises me will come to pass. The Great Commission encapsulates the essence of this lesson and brings context and expression to everything, to every lesson contained in this course. It is the instruction from Jesus that has set the course for everyone who wants to become his disciple. This is the fruit of Christ likeness and genuine discipleship, that the love of God may work in and through his people bringing them into Christ-likeness and empowering them to extend and establish the influence of His kingdom through their daily lives. St. Francis of Assisi is famous for, for one particular quote. It says, Preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. Talking about such a life of transformation that wherever you go, there's a little Christ, there's Christian. That's what love looks like. That's the value system of the kingdom of God and create opportunities for happenings. So in conclusion, as we round up this course, it's important to remember that the whole purpose of discipleship is for us to be trained in Jesus' ways. What does discipleship mean? To follow Jesus. To follow Him as a person. To follow Him, to draw near to Him, 
and to follow in his ways, to do what he did. As we allow the Word of God to train our thoughts, attitudes, and behavior, we begin to take on the likeness of Christ and become his representatives or ambassadors in this world. Christ has given us his overcoming life, having done away with the yoke of sin that had ensnared us. By this new life within us, we are able to adopt and bring to bear the powerful values and culture of the kingdom of God in and through our daily lives. We're also empowered to carry on the ministry of Jesus Christ in bringing the kingdom of God to bear through physical manifestations over the powers of darkness. Note the last scripture that I've quoted in this entire course. It's poignant. 1 John 3 verse 8, the second part of the verse says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work and to usher in a new kingdom. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we have been given the privileged position of being both citizens and ambassadors for the kingdom of God. We should see it that way. We, this is an incredible privilege. Unearned, unmerited, undeserved. God, not just that I am saved, but that you want to co-labor with me to bring your glorious love and kingdom to bear in and through my life. Wow, what an honor, what a privilege. With this wonderful privilege comes a great responsibility to extend and establish the influence of God's kingdom in our own lives and the lives of those we meet. How have you been sowing kingdom seeds into the lives of those around you? Has the light of God's love been impacting those around you as they see it in your life? Ask God to give you opportunities to share the gospel of His kingdom, bringing light where there is darkness, healing where there is sickness, liberty where there is bondage, and peace where there is strife or anxiety. The joyous adventure of following Christ will take on an exhilarating dimension as you continually submit to His leading and allow His Word to transform your thoughts and lifestyle. You will then experience for yourself the vastness of His unfathomable love, enabling you to reflect His power and glory as you engage in this wonderful grace. Living for Christ is a choice that we have the privilege of making every single day. I love that line. <coughs> Living for Christ is a choice that we have the privilege of making every single day. Have you guys learned something? Has maybe not something new, but maybe, maybe some things have come back into into their right focus and their right place in this course. And so it's a good time for me to, you know, I had on my heart, Lord, how do we, how do we close this out? How do we just, I mean, do we just come and do we learn some stuff and then we carry on as if nothing happened? And Yeah, we're just sowing seeds, you know. Or, or Father, is there, is there a place where we should say, stand up tonight maybe, and this is what I felt led to do, just stand up and say, Jesus, this is what I want. I want to be a disciple. I want to follow you. This isn't to, you know, give my heart to you. I've done that already, Jesus. I mean, I'm your, I'm your child. That's why I'm here. But I, I, I haven't really, I haven't gone to the measure and to the place where I know you desire for me. I haven't really taken on this, this ambassador thing and realized that you actually want to do work through me into other people. I've underestimated that which is within me. 
that incredible power in life. And maybe you'd like to join me in a prayer tonight because I want to pray this prayer. I just say, Jesus, I want, to, I want to be a disciple. I want to follow you with boldness that I don't have, in power that isn't mine, and in love that, that, is, that is from another world so that I can be an ambassador for you and make a change in this world around me. So let's stand. If you want to do that tonight, and let's pray this out together. And so, Lord, Holy Spirit, we just want to thank you for this moment that we have to, to be together. Thank you for everything you've spoken to our hearts and minds, through, through, not, through not just through tonight, but through this whole course, through this lessons. And I want to thank you, Lord God, that, that you have called us into something that is so much bigger than ourselves and into a mandate and a vision that is way bigger than we even have our minds around right now. We're just a very small part of this, this very big thing called your church and your plan. But God, I want to thank you that, that in the same way that we feel so insignificant sometimes, you place huge importance on each one of us as individuals. I want to thank you for your Holy Spirit residing within every one of us. And Lord, we're with cares of this world and we're just life and doing things and even religious ruts, Father God, have, have caused us to lose sight of the greatness of the gift of your salvation. To, to cast our expectation in other places than you and our, our minds and our thoughts to be guided by things other than your Holy Spirit. Lord, tonight we want to say sorry. Lord, we've settled for a lot less than what you came to give us. And Lord, where we're living lives that are busy and so often filled with so many things but are unfruitful for your kingdom, Lord, we want to say sorry. Say, God, I don't want to be a branch that produces no fruit attached to the vine, but nothing coming out. Lord, I want to pray that you would prune in our hearts tonight that which bears no fruit. Those desires, those pursuits, those temptations, whatever they may be, God. Lord, would you, you, you say that you'd help us to just prune those things and clear them off? Because tonight we want to make a recommitment, a rededication, a decision to say that when we leave this place and we were going to work tomorrow morning, God, we want to do so with the knowledge that we are disciples, following you, Jesus, and that we are ambassadors for kingdom change. We want to say sorry, Holy Spirit, for being too busy to listen to your voice, for looking at people through how they make us feel or through how the way they behave rather than looking at people, Father, through your eyes. Lord, forgive us for that. Help us to see things from your perspective. And God, would you give us the boldness to step out and just take you at your word? You say to us that these signs will follow those who believe. And we want to say, like the man who brought his child, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Give us the boldness we need to step out just because we trust you and leave the results up to you, Father God. But we are not content to just live our lives day by day without seeing you working through us in ways where we can share your love and not just through good works and good deeds, but, but who you are, Jesus, by communicating who you are. And tonight we want to put up our hands and say, here we are, Lord. Move in our hearts. Give us opportunities and help us recognize opportunities to share your love with others, to pray for other people, my Lord God, to step out in faith and follow your example, Jesus. Lead us into greater depths of revelation, knowledge, and understanding. 
and of fruitfulness, we pray in Jesus' name, that we may be a blessing to you and blessing to your kingdom. And Father God, that, that your, your love and your life and everything that you came to give may be seen and clearly demonstrated in and through our lives. This is our desire, Lord. And so we bless you for tonight. We bless you for moments like this where we can just realign and shift. We bless and thank you that your Holy Spirit never goes from us. Holy Spirit, we honor you for your role, for your leading and for your guidance. And the way you minister the heart and the mind of God to us, we bless you for that tonight. As we go from here tonight, God, we thank you, your angels go with us, that that your ministering spirits look after us and, and get us all home safely. We thank you for the fire that you've kindled in our hearts. We ask you, Lord, daily, just just breathe on it. Cause it to burn so brightly, Lord God, that others will be able to see the light coming from our hearts and from who we are. So we thank you for this time. We thank you for this course and what you've sown into our hearts. And we thank you for the fruit of it all. In Jesus' mighty and wonderful name. Amen. We hope that you've enjoyed this message. For additional resources and more information, come and visit us at alphaomega.org.za.